Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Continuous Plays Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast. Continuous Play Podcast is not affiliated with Heyday Films, 1492 Pictures, Duncan Henderson Productions, or Warner Brothers Pictures. And any discussion of these films, the characters, music, or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Now, Anna and Jay, raise your wands, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Film Strips Harry Potter Retrospective Series. I'm Jay. I'm Anna. And we're glad you've joined us for this third episode in the series where we talk about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the 2004 film based, of course, on the novel by J.K. Rowling, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. We get a new director this time, of course, uh, adapted in the screenplay by Steve Close, the guy that's done all of them so far, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, Emma Watson, Michael Gambon, David Tulis, Timothy Spall, Emma Thompson, and Gary Oldman. This one, of course, was made on a budget of $130 million, and it made $249 million, a little over that domestically, wound up making $795 million worldwide. And of the Harry Potter series, Anna, if I were to tell you which one ranks the lowest in revenue, would you believe it is this third installment? Yes, I would. Okay, that's interesting that you picked that out. I would have never thought that because this one has the highest bit of critical acclaim to it. It's also the mm-hmm. one that got the broadest audience, and it's one mm-hmm. of the shortest ones. This one's just over two hours and 20 minutes long. Uh, the mm-hmm. other two have clocked in nearly at three hours, so it's lean and mean, this Prisoner of Azkaban. I mean, they took some real changes in this one going forward with it. Yeah, but also... The plot is not the main reason I would say it is probably one of the lesser grossing ones. Number one, this was the first one they released in the summer. All the other ones up until this point had been released in the fall around Christmas time. And there were other things to other blockbusters to contend with at the time. Also, the it's the most acclaimed, but the plot is not, for lack of a better term, or sexy or snazzy. <laughs> it's a very simple plot, which is probably why they could tighten the script up so well. Well, the book is is a little longer than the second book, but it's not one of the longest ones. In fact, you'll find out no. that the next book's twice the length of this one, and they even get bigger as we go on. We get into that in a minute. But it is the, I call it lean and mean in the outset, and it is that. And I'll tell you, it may have critical acclaim, but this is not one that the diehard Harry Potter fans cling to. There's not a lot of them out there that really love this movie. We can get into a little bit of that after we get into uh, the the film here, but why don't you give us a brief plot summary? Let's get on the same page of what we're talking about in this third chapter of the Harry Potter saga. 
Okay. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban follows Harry in his third year of magical education. Instead, Harry must deal with the knowledge that he has been targeted by Sirius Black, an escaped murderer believed to have assisted in the deaths of Harry's parents. As Harry struggles with his reaction to the Dementors, dark creatures with the power to devour a human soul, which are protecting the school, he reaches out to Remus Lupin, a defense against the dark arts teacher, and yet again, as we say is a running joke in her books and the movies, there's another defense against the <laughs> dark arts teacher. Um, but this teacher has a dark secret. Lupin teaches Harry defensive measures which are well above the level of magic generally shown by people his age. Harry learns that both Lupin and Black were close friends of his father. As Harry, Hermione, and Ron are trying to save Hagrid's beloved hippograph from execution, they stumble upon a secret passageway in the Whomping Willow. There they find Sirius Black and the whole story. Professor Lupin joins them and hugs Sirius as an old friend. They realize that Lupin was a werewolf and Sirius, James, and Peter Pettigrew were the people that could change into animals. They would all hang out in the Shrieking Shack in Hogsmeade with Lupin until he recovered. Um, Sirius never betrayed the Potters. In fact, it was Peter Pettigrew who had been living with the Weasleys as a kid's pet rat scabbers all these years. Unfortunately, Professor Snape crashes in and everyone is forced to go to the castle. But with the help of Hermione's time turner, they're able to save the Hippograph and Sirius. But Peter Pettigrew escapes as well. Sirius and the Hippograph ride off into the sunset, hiding from the Dementors and escaping a most certain death. Harry learns that Sirius is his godfather and he is very happy to have another connection to his parents. And that is a very condensed plot summary. But there's, as you, we, we said, this is the thinnest plot. But dang, there's still a lot going on in this movie. Well, yeah, the base. I mean, you can really sum up the plot is that Sirius Black escapes from Azkaban and everybody wants to kill, and everybody thinks he wants to kill Harry. I mean, you could really sum it up in like five sentences. But there's more going on. There's even more going on than what I even put in the plot summary. Oh yeah, and I mean, it's. I mean, for a movie that moves fast and i want to say this about this movie i felt like that i said in the review of the chamber of secrets that at times i felt like it dragged a little bit well this one wastes no time i mean this is built as the fast track harry potter and it's directed and built in a way that i would argue you didn't have to see the first two you only needed passing knowledge of harry potter to be able to jump in to this film and alfonso curon says that that is one of his motivations when he made this film was he wanted to make a Harry Potter film that non Harry Potter fans could just jump into and enjoy. Now that's one of the rubs that a lot of the diehard fans of Harry Potter have against this is that they cut out a lot of stuff in the book and it does move so fast and it is a little, I guess, light glazed over the, the story. But I don't know that that's a fair you know, criticism. But what do you think of him as a director just versus what we've seen from Chris Columbus in the first two movies? Oh, I think he's a way better director, in my opinion. I think, um, you know, you got to look at what Chris Columbus has done and what Alfonso Cuaron has done. And I think he's a way better director, you can tell. But the kids are actually, not to knock Chris Columbus, the kids are actually growing up and they're starting to grow up. And I think he could, and that's one of the reasons they chose him for this film in particular, um, because of his mama, um, was it E2 Mama Tambien? Yeah. And they 
chose him specifically because kind of the plot in that movie and the plot, it had some of the same concepts as this Harry Potter did. And I think he did an excellent, an excellent job in this. In fact, this is the probably the one movie where the movie is better than the book of the whole series. Where the movie, in my opinion, I've read the book, and in my opinion, the movie is better in the book because it's amazing how they condensed it because that book drags on and there's no real, there's other things in here. And I think I've mentioned to you offline in the book, like Ron and Hermione are in a feud because she gets a cat and it messes with scabbers and they don't talk. And Harry's caught in the middle for a while. And he's constantly trying to figure out where Sirius Black is and stuff. And this is one of my favorite movies in the Harry Potter series, but it's one of my least favorite books. That's interesting to hear you say that. I wonder if that indeed has impacted the ultimate box office of this one. I mean, you know, we talking about this thing. It's made it made seven hundred ninety five million dollars, and we talk about it being a the lowest one in the series so far. I mean, it's still it's still blowing away a lot of the a lot of the movies I like. But still, you wonder if that didn't have an effect on it. I'll say this about Alfonso Cuarón versus Chris Columbus. Chris Columbus does movies that are sentimental and touching. But at times, they border on being overly sentimental, if that makes sense. They're sappy. They, they are. They're they're downright sappy at times. And he can get a little sappy with everything in the thing. Alfonso Cuaron does things that are touching and kind of wrenching in a way, but it moves. The camera always moves, and the, the sets are so beautiful. And it just the way the actors move through this dense plot, and they're talking all the time, and there's all this, you know, there's all this exposition in these movies. And they, there's always this movement of the camera. This, this film felt like it was constantly on the move. And it really fits the theme of this idea. There's this prisoner escape. There's this whole mystery about who he is and all of that. And it seems like everyone's in sort of a, a, a fright the whole time. And mm-hmm. this movie moves like that when you're real cautious. And it's even got elements in it that are cautious, the whole map. I liked it. I thought it was a good break away from the style of Chris Columbus to get something a little little more action-oriented, if you will. I mean, I, I felt like the last one really didn't have any cool action in it. This one's loaded with it. Well, also on that note is one thing J.K. Rowling has done is her books have grown with her audience. Her first books were kind of like the movies, the Chris Columbus, Sappy Sweet kids. But I mean, how long can you go with that sappy sweetness with a kid who was basic, his, who was basically orphaned and gone to live with these people who just absolutely hate him and would not let him talk about his parents? And then he's got this deranged dictator-like chasing him, trying to kill him for the last seven years. So how long can you stay in that sappy, sweet, oh, this is such a wonderful wizarding world? You're right. At some point, it has to stop being magically delicious and has to start being interesting. Yes, and this is the point that they needed to do it, and they made the right decision with getting a new director. I agree 100%. This was, the, this was a great decision. It's well shot. It looks good, and it's it's fun. So I, mean, I think we both are in agreement that we like Alfonso Cuaron's mm-hmm. take on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. But we got, we're going to get to our actors and the characters, because it's the easiest way to kind of talk about this film is how they all progress. But we got 
you know, some new ones we got to throw in when we need to talk about the, you know, once again, the new defense against the dark arts teacher. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk about Emma Thompson's character, the divination. And we got to talk about the new Dumbledore though. Michael Gambon comes in to replace Sir Richard Harris, who had passed away in between the two films, passed away not long after the second one was made. And we talked about last time about how just sort of sickly he was. And, yeah. And, and he just didn't come off like Dumbledore supposed to be. I mean, he's mm-hmm. old, but he's still powerful. I really dug Michael Gambon. I just, I thought he had this big, deep, rich voice, and it was just a different take than Richard Harris. Well, at first, it, I, I will say I, I will agree with you that I like Michael Gambon better. And in the um, whole scheme of things, he's been in more movies than Richard Harris. So, you know, by the last movie, I'm used, I'm used to it. But when I first saw this movie, it took some getting used to and having read the book before this movie came out. And I think also with this movie, as we were talking and just made me think of it, is that I think this movie had the longest time period in between it, like between the second and the third. There's a greater time period. And as I'm reading the books, and I I think I've said this in the other podcasts, that Richard Harris fit her description of Dumbledore to a T. And so it was kind of hard for me to get behind the new Dumbledore. But now, but if if he could look like Richard Harris and act like Michael Gambon, then it would be perfect. It would be perfect, exactly what she put on paper. But as the movies went and we got Dumbledore got more involved with Harry, I think it it works out better. Is what I'm trying to say. Well, you're right. There are three years between these the the two the second film and the third film. I should say mm-hmm. there's three years between Chamber of Secrets and this one, and the kids have grown up a lot. And but really nothing, you know, there's only been a year's time in the or not even a year's time. There's just been a few months time in between Mm -hmm. the story. So the story didn't age the way everybody else did, but it did bring them up to speed. They look older now. They talk older. Rupert Grant starting to get the deeper voice. Daniel Radcliffe's Mm -hmm. voice is changing. Emma Watson starting to look more like a young woman instead of just a little girl. And I mean, they're all looking a little older now. And I think you had to balance them against people that. Still, I think it hold power on them. I mean, I, you know, no offense to, and I'm not a fan of the books. Like I said, I've only read one of the books. I, I didn't know what Dumbledore was supposed to look like. I just heard everybody say, oh, Richard Harris is going to look just like what Dumbledore is described like in the book. So I sort of always thought that too. But the first time I saw this movie, I barely you know, paid any attention to the fact that it was changed. I knew it was going to be a change, and I watched it, and I just went with it. And even this time watching it for this review – you just kind of go in and go with it because Michael Gambon has such a presence on screen. And part mm-hmm. of that is the character. Dumbledore's given a lot to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's one. given way more to do in this and, and the subsequent movies yeah. than in the first two. And I have to say that is an extension of one. The story grows with him as a part of it. But the second film, they cut out a lot of the Dumbledore stuff because Richard Harris just wasn't able to do it. Now, Michael Gambon did it, and he did excellent with it and there was talk of you know peter o'toole or ian mckellen and i want to tell you something I, peter o'toole would have been wrong for this role he would have just been another frail old man up there ian mckellen that's interesting to me because i love him as is just about anything but really as magneto in the x-men series and going back to gambon i liked his portrayal as dumbledore i thought it was 
it was good. It was fine for me. And I think you said hit the nail on the head. I've seen him more times than Richard Harris as Dumbledore. Uh-huh. So I don't have any problems sort of seeing him in the role. He's really grown with it and done well with it. So I was cool mm-hmm. with it. Oh, yeah. What what about Emma Thompson? They bring her in now, the inept divination teacher at Hogwarts. And she basically is like the, I guess if you want to say divination is anything, it's supposed to be like the reading of the tea leaves, almost literally. Yeah, right? it's, it's supposed to be like fortune telling. Yeah, what did you read as her? She's kind of a bumbling goof. She's kind of like a space cadet, which I would expect from someone <laughs> who's a fortune teller. It's kind of like she's this, she's just kind of in her own little world. And they put her in these like really thick, like Coke bottle glasses, yeah. make her eyes like 10 times bigger than they normally are. And she, I, I mean, I think she does a good job. When I first heard she was going to be doing this role, I was excited. But I really don't think they gave – now that I look back, I don't think they gave her a lot to work with. Well, the, the whole point is she's supposed to be the harbinger of bad news for Harry, right? That uh-huh. bad things are coming his way, you know? And indeed, bad things happen to him in this film, you know? Uh-huh. So she's not entirely wrong, but she's supposed to be kind of the dark cloud hanging over him. She's the thing that – lets him know beyond the fact that everybody's telling him Sirius Black wants to kill you and that he learns that, you know, through his own devices too, you know, she's reinforcing that through the, Oh, the leaves are, and she's doing all that bit. And it's, it's played off as laughs, but it also works in some way. Like you can believe her because Emma Thompson has that ability as an actress that, I mean, she could play, you know, flow from progressive and I'd buy it, Mm -hmm. you know I mean? She just can kind of do that. So I think it was a good casting choice. I kind of like it. I, I do. I still contend she didn't have a lot to work with, but I do like the character because um, it's kind of like a teacher with tenure. She makes like one really awesome prediction every two years at the end of the movie, like she ha- or towards the end of the movie, she has a real prediction, like her voice changes and her whole demeanor changes. Like the whole movie, she's gone and they're reading the tea leaves and they're looking in the crystal ball and basically everything she tells Harry is you're going to die. You're going to die. Well, y- you know what? It, what's what's inevitable in life? Death and taxes. So, you know, <laughs> you know, of course <laughs> you're going to die. Everybody's going to die eventually. And, um, you know, and it's highly likely that Harry's going to die a horrible death since he's got this demented, psychopathic dictator on his butt all the time. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of probable. So she's kind of gone through this, but then it's like she's had these premonitions and her whole she's kind of been like the space cadet like I described. And then at the end, she has a real premonition and her whole demeanor changes and stuff. And it, I don't think it's in the movie, but in the book, Dumbledore makes a comment like, oh, well, she got, he, he, he tells Dumbledore what she said. And um, he makes a comment like, oh, wow, she's had two. Like she had one when Dumb- when Baltimore <laughs> first came to power and this one. So she, so even Dumbledore knows she never gets anything right or it's not an exact science, I guess is what I'm saying. He even knows that. I was going to say, you know, they constantly throw these faculty members up in, in, in Harry's face that are the academicians of magic, if you will. They, it's so scientific and it's so mm-hmm. they've got the process down. In a lot of ways, Her- Hermione is the perfect student, right? Mm-hmm. She knows the processes, you know, and but Harry and Ron are the improvisers. 
And and Harry in particular is the ultimate improviser. Like he could spout the rules at him all day, but what happens? What we've seen in these first two movies, you tell him this is going to happen to you, this is going to happen to you, and it almost happens. And then what does he do? He like sidesteps and whoop, nope, going to do it the other way. Uh-huh. You know, Her- that's Harry's whole mo. And I feel like they just keep inventing or not inventing. They keep bringing forth these characters that are there to reinforce this. You know, this is the way it's going to be. And he keeps coming back with, but this is how I'm really going to do it. And then in a flip of things, they let Hermione be an improviser in this movie with the whole time turner thing. They're they're bringing that element in. It's, It's always the kids are the improvisers against this system in a lot of ways. I feel like I I just keep reading that. And Emma Thompson is sort of the embodiment of that this time around on the flip side is Remus Lupin played by David Thewlis, the defense against the dark arts teacher who's a werewolf. But among other things, he's also probably like the nicest professor these kids have had so far next to Dumbledore, right? Like he, he doesn't teach conventionally. Like he has very, he's the cool professor. He is the cool professor. He's the cool professor. You've got McGonagall and Snape and stuff. And he's the cool professor who can relate to the kids. He does. And he has, he has such a neat arc. I really liked this character and I hated that he left at the end. I was like another one. Dang it. Can we not get a defense against the dark arts teacher to last? I mean, sheesh, you know, the, uh, the faculty Senate's going to have a word with, uh, you know, <laughs> these people because uh, they're rolling these people out, but I liked him a lot. I'm, and you know, the, the actor had actually auditioned for the role of Quirrell from the, the first movie and didn't get it, but they brought him in for this. And I, really liked him and he had this whole bit about he, he's he's planted off the secret that he's got you know and i'll tell you the first time i saw this i did not see the werewolf bit coming i didn't see that at all should have and now when you watch it it's kind of obvious but did you see that coming from a mile away even when you're reading the book the first time well the book does it differently i wouldn't have seen it coming if i hadn't read the book if I, the book does it differently and the book even surprised me because the book goes into long, long things about how bad he looks all this time. Like students do normally, like what's wrong with Professor Lupin? Why does he look so sick today? So it would go on about that. And um, then it does have the same thing in the book where Snape is asking them about werewolves. Like he's substitute teaching and he's asking them about werewolves. And it, it goes on and on. And I didn't figure it out in the book. If I hadn't read the book, I probably wouldn't have figured it out because the movie gives even less clues. Yeah, they really do a good job of hiding it. And and I mm-hmm. do like the fact that the way that he's tied to Sirius Black and that it's ultimately going to be him who kind of brings the kids over to the side that Sirius has been framed and this is not he's not this evil person, but he's really kind of the patsy that has been set up by a group of people and he's also sort of taken the fall for some things in order to you know mislead the dark forces that are out there and stuff and i guess we need to talk about it now gary oldman is serious black i i will watch gary oldman do anything there are a few actors that i i will do that with but i can watch this guy do anything mainly because he will play anything thing he's kind of like john malkovich in that way you know you bring him in and he's this immediately recognizable sinister face because gary oldman is almost always playing what the bad guy he played lee harvey oswald he played dracula he kidnapped harrison ford the president once i mean he's always the bad guy so if you want to cast somebody as the potential bad guy not a bad choice grabbing Gary Oldman. 
But this is the first time I've really realized it's Gary Oldman and not some character actor who always plays a Russian or a bad guy or something. Wait a minute, that, never... that is Gary Oldman. <laughs> well, that's how I would, until this movie, that is how I would characterize Gary Oldman. You know, he's no longer that guy. He's no longer that guy that plays a bad guy. He is Gary Oldman from this, in my opinion. Well, I, I can tell you, he's played almost nothing but bad guys since. I mean, it's kind of his deal is to play a heavy. He played Commissioner Gordon. You know what? I, I didn't think about that, but you're right. I don't I don't think about him in the Batman films. I always think about the other people because he is a real supporting role in there. But we talked about him as Gordon, as the police officer Gordon, Lieutenant <laughs> Gordon, and then ultimately Commissioner Gordon at the end. Yeah, he's such a, a chameleon. I mean, he can be so many different emotions and things. And in this movie, he's playing somebody who's looks like they're just out of their mind. You know, they're insane and they're just, uh, you know, and he's always he's growling at the screen in that little moving newspaper. That's like it's like a, if the TMZ mug shots were live action, they would be the uh. front of that newspaper. But it, it gives him this instant recognizability right there's this sinisterness to him and i think he is excellent in this movie and then when they turn it you know when he is revealed to be no someone who protected harry's parents and is he's actually a real benevolent force in harry's life that harry just hasn't known about it's a different way of looking at it and you can tell he is crazy but he's got good intentions instead of bad ones i liked it a lot it was a real fun character I do too. And like I said, this is the first time I realized it's Gary Oldman. And going back to the Batman thing, he, this movie, he probably looks more like he does as a bad guy in his other movies, but he looks totally different to me in the Batman franchise. He, he, like, he truly looks like a chameleon in that. So, yes, I think it was a very good choice. He's a very good actor. He was perfect for this role. It was a very good choice. Well, let's revisit our three main characters, though. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who have gone through a good bit of changes themselves. But did you like how they worked with each other and off of each other in this one? They're starting to build into that, you know, ultra beginning teenage years hormonal rage angstiness that you know kids go through mm-hmm. and and the whole thing with Harry Potter in this is that he's he's essentially got to learn how to control his emotions and his anger when he's threatened because that's the whole thing about the patronus right is that that's the protection spell that it projects this you know, fierce uh, image of yourself that sort of comes from within and it'll protect you against all these evil forces. And, and he has to learn how to harness that and use it. But it's all about self-confidence, right? Which is the one thing no early teenager has, especially teenage boys. And I, I thought it was cool the way he played it. I mean, he really balanced the anger and the upsetness. I mean, he's come to deal with the fact of who he is and who his parents are and what happened to them. And anything that he thinks is responsible for their death, he is he is so staunchly against it. And, I mean, he's threatening to kill Sirius and all this. I mean, he's really talking tough in this one. It's a real different Harry Potter than it was the last time around. Yeah, I agree. And it goes back to, like I said, it's moving with the audience, as I said before. But also, I'm trying to think back, and I wouldn't classify the Patronus like like as self-confidence. The Patronus doesn't just protect you. You can use it for other stuff, like some people use it to 
notify people that you're there or something. According to the Harry Potter Wikipedia, (laughs) which is quite extensive, the the Patronus conjures an incarnation of the caster's innermost positive feelings, such as joy, hope, desire to survive. It's a protector, and you're right, it can be used as a weapon rather than a predator. Right. And I, yeah, I wouldn't say it is self-confidence. I would say it's in this instance with Harry that it is kind of like overcoming. Like in the beginning, the Dementors are sucking his soul. He's showing weak. I mean, he's Harry Potter, the boy who lived in the. He's showing weakness. He's getting ridiculed by his nemesis Malfoy. I, I just think it's him overcoming. I can't ride on the boy who lived, and I've been lucky before. I gotta do. I've got to back up what everybody thinks, and I think he conjures this up, and it shows his. I guess you could call it self-confidence, but I would call it, it shows that he he's worthy of the title or something. Well, well didn't we talk about, you know, Harry Potter is really kind of the, the stud jock growing yes. up. And now this is the part where the jock's, you know, body starts to grow ahead of his abilities and he's got to work at it. And mm-hmm. this is Harry learning how to, cr- l- you know, learn his craft. This is Kobe doing work in high school. This is Harry learning how to do the crossover and shoot the three. You know, this this is what he can do. And I, I, I can totally see the metaphor there. This is the jock really learning how to be the student. And on the flip side of it, when we talk about Hermione now, this is the student learning how to be the jock. You know, because Hermione hasn't been able to do much physically in these first two movies. I mean, she's been uh-huh. trapped and, you know, disappeared for a little while and they've had to rescue her and stuff. Well, in this one, I mean, she goes right up after old Lucius Malfoy, which was awesome. And and then she's, you know, she's traveling through time to take more classes, you know. So it's a, still a nerd thing, but it's a cool uh-huh. thing, you know. And at the end, she's the thing that really spurs Harry on to go do the Patronum and all that stuff. I liked the fact that they gave Hermione more to do than just be the smart one and the somewhat damsel in distress, because that was getting old. Yeah, and... Yes, I agree. It's getting old. And it's kind of a common theme through the next next few books, I think. She she but she, that character just can't she has she has written so tough and so um she's the perfect role model for girls that age. She's smart, she's tough, she can hang you know, her two best friends are boys and she can hang with them. I mean, she she's just a good role model for girls and I I mean, I really, I really like Hermione. How did you like her whole character turn this time, though, where they did give her an active role in the those resolve? Because they kind of take Ron out of it. He gets hurt, and he's sort of laid up for the end of it. Right, but I'm you, and let me say this: I am used to the books, and she, she's an equal opportunity damsel in distress. It's not always the girl. It's not always the boy. But I've noticed in her books, she rotates things out. And they'll like in one book, Harry and Hermione will have a fight and the next and Ron's in the middle and the next book, Ron and Harry will have a fight and Hermione's in the middle and stuff. And there'll be a conflict. She like rotates her conflict out and someone gets stuck in the middle and someone's not talking. And it's the same thing with this. It's it's, you know. At one point, Ron's a damsel in distress. At one point, Hermione is. At one point, Harry is. And she just, so I'm kind of used to it. She just kind of rotates them out. 
that she just kind of rotates them out equally as whoever's locked somewhere or the damsel in distress. And I'm just kind of used to it in her books. So I don't think I really thought anything about it. But I do, I think all of them, not just Emma Watson or Daniel Radcliffe or Rupert Grant, but I think all of them, you can see how they, and they have said in interviews and stuff, how much they learned. I think this was one where I think Alfonso Cuaron made them write a paper on their character. It was either, I believe it was this one. He made them write a paper on their character. And so Daniel Radcliffe just did like a paper, you know, just did a paper. What was asked of him? He turned it in like he was supposed to. Um, Emma Watson, you know, did all this research and stuff. So, cause that's what Hermione would do. She would write this long paper with too much information that you don't need. And then Rupert Grant just didn't turn his hand because he <laughs> said, that's what Ron would do. So he was like, ah, Ron wouldn't even do the paper. And I, I want to say this, that is, that may be right. But I also feel like Ron got the shaft in this movie. He's not, they didn't have anything to do because he's kind of in between. I mean, he hasn't really <laughs> developed anything. His whole purpose is that his rat becomes this important character and he's yet again completely oblivious to a major point in the plot you know well thanks a lot ron so yeah ron does not have the evil ginger magic going for him (laughs) that most of them do have i mean he he's not yet turned it on and i'm kind of sad for him because i do feel like of, of the three main characters Ron is sort of the least used in this. He's got some moments, sure, but I just didn't feel like we went anywhere new with him other than he was a little taller. Yeah, and he was basically the comic relief, I think. Well, yeah. He usually is the comic relief. But, I mean, you can tell how they matured and the difference in the directing where it's gone from a kid's movie to a young adult movie and they have moved with it. And I think that has a lot to do with the director and they've said in interviews how much they've learned on this movie and that, you know, no offense to Chris Columbus, but I've learned so much and I I never knew to do this and stuff. And I think that they are really stepping in their shoes and stepping in the characters for this. And I was really, I was really impressed you know, back, I didn't think they had it in them, but they do. And they've carried it forward for what, four or five more movies now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a momentum changer in this series. Well, before we get to the end of it though, Anna, I mean, what did you think of the ultimate, the end of this thing? Cause it ends and then it has another ending, you know, like we see it end and it ends badly. You know, Lupin turns uh-huh. into a werewolf. He and, you know, Sirius Black have to kind of fight it out. And because Black can become a, a, a big black dog, wolf type creature. Uh-huh. And uh, Peter Pettigrew has been revealed as a human and he's trying to turn into a rat and run away. And then the Dementors who've been around, these are, these are these sort of floating black spirits that suck your soul out, among other things that have been looking for Black, show up. And they essentially, you know, knock Harry out. He's traumatized from it. And he wakes up in Hogwarts to realize that Sirius was captured and that the hippograph that's like this, you know, what is that? A big falcon with a like some kind of it's like a flying giraffe. Yeah, it's like a flying giraffe, but with a falcon's beak or whatever has been executed and all this stuff. All the bad things that can happen happened. And Hermione comes in with the time turner 
to basically take Harry back to the moment when it all goes south, and they're able to free Buckbeak, who ultimately fights off Lupin that lets Sirius play a role in the end, and Harry throws the Patronum to save himself and Sirius from the Dementors at the end, and then it all works out. I mean, how did you like that as a reveal and as a turn for the climax of the story? I thought it was kind of cool. It was cool, but back to the whole Patronum thing, you said something something interesting is originally Harry thinks it's his dad. He yep. he vaguely sees the Patronus the first time, the first time, and he thinks it's his dad who saved him because apparently they look so much alike as you hear through all seven of the books. And uh, except he has his mother's eyes, and um, <laughs> and so I guess from a distance across the pond he probably looked like his dad. Who knows? And he sees the Patronus. And um, he thinks it's his dad. And then when he's waiting, he's waiting. When he sees himself getting attacked by the Dementors, he's waiting for his dad to show up. And he doesn't. And he sees it getting worse and worse and worse. And that get, that's when he gets the confidence to expel the Patronus. And he saves, he in turn saves himself. So, I, I mean, I think I was just, that just made me think of the Patronus. So, I really, I, I like the ending. I like movies if they're a good movie. I, I like one type of movie and I hate another type of movie. I love movies like where it's a good movie and you want to see more. You think it's going to end, but you see more and you see more. And finally it ends and you're like, oh, that was a good movie. There are other movies, which this is a good segue into Harry Potter 4, where you are praying that they end and they <laughs> never do. Well, that's that's a good point, And that's a discussion for another day. So yes. before, before we get any further into that, though, Anna, we've got to wrap it up. So your popcorn rating and recommendation on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I would give it an extra large popcorn because you don't have to see the other ones and you don't have to see any of the um, next ones. This is a good standalone. It probably the one of the best directions of the whole series. And um, I'm kind of bummed they didn't have, um, they couldn't get Alfonso Cuaron to come back for the last couple of movies. So I give it an extra large popcorn and you don't have to be a Harry Potter nerd or geek or aficionado to watch it you, it can be a standalone movie it's a nice tight script the acting is so good if you watch the second one versus this you can see the difference you can see the difference in direction the sets are beautiful they're a little weird especially if you watch the first two movies it's it's kind of weird and it doesn't really speak to me as a english boarding school but they work, and they work with the plot, and they're beautiful. I can't really think of one bad thing to say about this movie. You know, I'm with you, Anna. This one is fantastic in almost every way. It's just a fun movie. It's just a good movie by itself. If you're not even a Harry Potter fan, I'd recommend just watching this one. Because you you know you'd have to be under a rock not to know what Harry Potter is about, right? So you could just watch. You just want to watch one. You don't even need the first one. Watch this. This is a great standalone. But even 
beyond being a good standalone, it's a really good one in the series. I like the way this one went. I think it had a lot of action. It moved. It was never boring. I loved all the characters in it, especially the new characters they introduced. I thought there was a lot of cool subtext there, stuff we didn't even talk about that's just there. You can watch this one over and over again. By far, an extra large popcorn for me as well. Really love Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So far, my favorite one in the series that we've talked about. And we've got several more films to go, though, and so we want to thank our listeners for joining in with us as we reconvene the Harry Potter series here. We'll be back again next time to talk about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Until then, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip on Continuous Play. Thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com.